Good evening. It's good to be with you here this evening at Marystown on this uh, rainy, dreary evening, and I trust we're here to uh, learn from the word of the Lord. Uh, I appreciate the selection of the songs and the, and the devotional, and no, uh, there was nothing that's contradictory to what I'm going to say. Uh, I want to read a couple verses to you before we get started in Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient time the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So one of the things I want to point out before we get started is that only God can perfectly predict the future. He is the only one who knows exactly how things are going to take place. At the right time and at the predicted time, it will happen. All we have to go by is the Bible. And so tonight, I, I, we're going to take a trip into the future. We are going to be looking at what, what the Bible says. Uh, I do think uh, prophetic truths are interesting, and it's easy to begin speculating, but I think we have to be careful about that. Uh, first of all, the word millennium. Uh, the word millennium is not found in the Bible. The American College of Dictionary gives two definitions. The first one is that a millennium is a span of a thousand years. And the second definition surprised me when I found it. It says, it is a thousand year period during which Jesus and his followers will rule the earth. I was very surprised to find that in a dictionary. Uh, in Revelation 20, there are, this, this matter of a thousand years is mentioned six times. Now there are different views about millennialism and I have a book here written by Harold Martin, a basic study of Bible teachings, and he has the last chapter on end time things. He gives a very clear definition of the three different positions on millennialism. And I'll read as, as he stated, post-millennialism holds that the millennium is an era of peace, not necessarily 1,000 years, which will occur once the majority of mankind accepts Jesus in the way of life which he taught. They say that as the church evangelizes the world, more and more people will embrace the gospel and learn to live together peaceably. At that point, all society will become Christianized, and the golden age, through the efforts of the church, will appear. The flaw with this thinking is they hold the view rather an idealistic, maybe even unrealistic view that the church is going to be militant in its efforts to evangelize the world and that it will eventually happen. And that is really not supported by scripture. It sounds like an idealistic idea, but it's not supported by scripture. A second position is all millennialism. It literally means no millennium. The all millennialist looks at the book of Revelation as a series of symbols which represent the Christian life and depict the spiritual reign of Christ in believers right now in the church age. 
Anyone who accepts the reign of Jesus in his life, according to this view, is in the millennium. And I know and recognize that there are people who are of this persuasion in, in the Anabaptist circles. Uh, all I'm going to say about that is that view leaves a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, and then the third one is premillennialism, views of the millennium as an actual earthly kingdom which will be established by the Son of God when he returns from heaven in great power and glory. Christ's victory over the armies of the Antichrist and over the forces of Satan will be an actual event in history all before the millennial reign. The reign of Christ on earth will be an actual event. This form of premillennialism was the primary view held by the early church. Now, this position, I would say this, it's difficult to understand, but when it's understood, it does seem to make the most sense. And uh, I'm not going to tell you which position I am. I think by the time I'm done with this message tonight, you'll, you'll have that figured out. Uh, first, I want to give a little bit of, I mentioned we're going to take a, a trip into the future. There's a lot of future things that I'm not going to be talking about. I'll just give a brief timeline. Of those things, the, the rapture of the church is one. Another one is the Antichrist will set up a, a false peace. And there will also be a, he'll make a covenant with the Jews which will be broken. And that's in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. And then there's going to be the time of Jacob's trouble, where there's going to be a time of, of tremendous tribulation. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And then we come to the, uh, the millennium. One of the laws of prophetic interpretation is the law of double reference. In other words, when you, do a, a, when you look at prophecy... You, you, you look for supporting verses in other chapters or in other books, which helps to confirm. So the law of double reference is, is something that's important to keep in mind as we study the scripture. Uh, it certainly holds true with the events to the millennium. There are a lot of the Old Testament books that refer to the millennium. It's difficult to pick out, uh, but they're there. And uh, I'm certainly not going to be looking at nearly all of them tonight. Bible prophecy, especially Old Testament prophecy, prophecy is like a picture puzzle. Uh, we don't always know where to put the parts and always know where to put the pieces. And so tonight we're going to look at a few of those pieces. And like I said, it's difficult to under understand every detail of this teaching. And I don't profess to be a professional when it comes to interpret, interpreting prophecy, but I, it, is a, it is a subject I do enjoy. The prophecy of scripture is something that is not of private interpretation. And we see that in 2 Peter 1.20. But through the Holy Spirit working in the community of believers in the church, we can develop some concepts of prophecy and what the future holds. And so, like I said, I will be looking at a lot of references tonight, so you may want to take notes instead of trying to follow after, because I'm probably going to go pretty, pretty rapidly. All right, we'll start putting this big puzzle together uh, with the scripture. 
The first point I have, and which I feel is the most significant event of the millennium, is that Satan is bound. And we find that in the book of Revelations. Uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed for a little season. Like I said, this, I believe, is the first and most significant event of, of the millennium. Uh, the ruler of the cosmos, the prince and the power of the air, the deceiver of the nations, is going to be immobilized. He's not going to be done away with, but he's going to be immobilized. His destruction will come in the future. He's been in a thorn of the flesh to the church ever since, well, ever since the church has begun, and he's been a thorn in the flesh ever since creation. Uh, he, and we had in Isaiah 14, we have where he was, he was cast out of heaven. And there's no mistaking who this person is. In verse 2, he's given four names, the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, and Satan. So there's no no mistaking in who we're talking about. And uh, what's going to happen here, he is not going to deceive the nations for a period of 1,000 years or a millennium. All right, I don't have a whole lot more to say on that point. The next point that I'd like to look at is, during this time, thrones will be occupied. In Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that have sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, Neither had received his mark upon their foreheads for in their hand, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Skipping down to verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on which the second death hath no power, but shall be priests of God and Christ. Notice, priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we see in verse 6 that the word priest is plural, which means multiple priests. Uh, We also see in verse 4 that the word thrones is plural. Now in order to get a little better picture of that, we'll turn turn to Luke chapter 22, Luke 22 verses 29 and 30. This is Jesus talking to his disciples about something that's going to happen in the future. Luke 22, verses 29 and 30. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at at my table in my kingdom and sit on his thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so we see that not only is the throne going to be occupied by Jesus Christ, but the thrones are going to be occupied by the saints. Again, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. 19, verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me into the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his 
glory, ye shall also sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The regeneration here is speaking of a new world order. Sometimes we hear the political world talking about a new world order. But the Bible foretells of a new world order when Christ is going to rule and his saints are going to be ruling with him. Now, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel 7, 9. And I beheld all the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. The Revised Standard Version says it like this. Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And so here in the King James Version, the, the word thrones is, is also given in, in, uh, in, in plural. But it, in, in a Revised Standard Version, it is as well. But there was more than one in these seats. Uh, we see in Daniel 7.22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints, notice in plural, of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Who were these who occupied the seats along, along with uh, the Ancient of Days, along with Jesus Christ? Well, we turn back to Revelation 20, verse 4, the verse we just read. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of men that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. So those who were beheaded for the witness of Christ through the ages and even into, through the time of, of the great tribulation are going to be those who are going to be sitting in this throne. The word beheaded here uh, literally means uh, they were struck with an axe. In other words, their heads were taken off by an axe. Then another group of people we see here in the same verse and they which had not worshipped the beast, nor his image, nor had received his mark upon his foreheads or in their hands, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So we see those, not only those who, who, uh, who were beheaded, but all of those who refused the mark of the beast, which is talk, talks about it a, a little bit earlier here in the book of Revelation. All of those who experienced the resurrection of the righteous are going to be sitting in these thrones to judge the, uh, the righteous. And we see that described in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Also in John chapter 5, verse 29, I think is an interesting verse. And, it sh and, they, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So it's speaking here of, of two different resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the damned. And these two resurrections are not going to happen at the same time. Uh, turn again to Revelation 20, verses 5 and 6. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were reigned. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power, but they, they shall be priests of God and of Christ, 
and shall reign with him a thousand years. So I believe the, the resurrection of the righteous occurs before the millennium, at, possibly at the rapture. The resurrection of the righteous will occur because the Bible says that when Christ returns in the air, the saints are going to leave their graves, and so that's the resurrection of the righteous. But the resurrection of the damned is going to happen after the thousand-year reign. All right, now let's look at a few more uh, pieces of this puzzle. The third point I have here is Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. And let's turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2 verses 1 to 3. As a matter of fact, the book of Isaiah has, has so many tidbits of, of prophecy that it's sometimes difficult to discern which age and time period it's talking about. And, and so the book of Isaiah just takes, takes a lot of study. It's an interesting book. But Jerusalem will become the capital of the world. Uh, Isaiah 2 verses 1 to 3. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established in the top of the mountain and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations will flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and he will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice, the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. Jerusalem will become the center of world governments. Jerusalem will also become the center to teach the law of God. It's not going to be Washington, D.C. It's not going to be New York City. It's not going to be the Kremlin. It's not going to be Beijing or any other big city. It's going to be Jerusalem. And I do kind of enjoy watching what happens in the news. I think it's a little over two years ago, President Trump, might be three years, made the decision that the U.S. Embassy is going to be moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And that move was designated to happen in the next presidential reign, which was President Biden. And President Biden has approved of moving the embassy to Jerusalem. That's just an interesting tidbit. Micah also saw this vision, uh, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. But then the last days is to come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Micah saw this vision. Zechariah also, and here we, here's where we have the law of double confirmation. It's, we find this confirmation in more than one book. Uh, Zechariah 14, verse 9. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. So there is going to be one universal king. 
It's not going to belong to any dictator who was, who was able to dominate the world, but it's going to belong to one universal king, and that king is Jesus Christ. Jesus is not going to be put there by the electorate. Jesus is going to be put there by the plan and the prophecy of God. This will take place. And Christ will reign with absolute power over all the earth. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, it says, He will teach his ways. The people are going to flow to Jerusalem to hear what God has to say. And so Jerusalem, not the Vatican, not Mecca, will become the rendezvous for the seekers of God. They're going to learn to know about him, and so they'll go go to Jerusalem. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, Isaiah 2, 4, And he shall judge among the nations, and he shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up nation sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There will be, during this period of time, there's not going to be any oppression. There's not going to be any injustices. There's not going to be any racial bigotry. There will be no military bases. There will be no lawyers and no judges. Just imagine living in a world like that with no lawyers and no judges. But the rule will come from God. It's not going to be the CIA, the FBI, or the KGB. Jesus Christ is going to make all final judgments. The instruments of destruction are going to be used for agriculture. Swords are going to be beat into plowshares. That's hard to imagine in a world that's constantly at war. During World War II, Steel was difficult to get, and therefore farm equipment, new farm equipment, was almost unavailable because all of U.S. steel, or the majority of U.S. steel, went towards the building of tanks and towards the building of ships. But the time is coming where it's going to be just the opposite. The materials of war are going to be beaten into into plowshares. They're going to be beaten into and used for agricultural purposes. There will be a universal peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. I know this is prophesying of the first coming of Christ. However, we can't help but notice of, his peace, of this peace, there's not going to be any end. And so this is a peace that's, that's going to stay uh, In Isaiah 2, verses 10 and 11, Isaiah 2 and 10 and 11, Enter into the rock and hide ye in the dust, for the fear of the Lord, for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Uh, Same chapter, verses uh, 17 to 21. And the loftiness of men shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And the idols shall be utterly destroyed, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for the fear of the Lord, for the glory of his majesty, 
when he arises to shake terribly the earth. In that day shall a man cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they have made each one for himself to worship to the moles and to the bats, and go into the clefts of the rocks, into the tops of the ragged mountains for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake terribly the earth. And so during this period of time, there's gonna be unspeakable panic, especially in the transition uh, of unbelievers. They're, they're gonna be fearful, they're going to hide. Uh, they're gonna go into the dens and the rocks of the mountains and the book of Revelation says that they're gonna cry out for the, for the mountains to fall in upon them. The third point we want to notice is that the curse is going to be lifted during the time of the millennium. Notice I said lifted. Uh, it's going to be removed in, in partiality, uh, partially, uh, but it will be ineffective during this, this thousand year reign. Uh, Isaiah 11 verses 2 to 4. Isaiah 11, 2-4, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and, he, and shall make him quick of understanding the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the, the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Now that is clearly prophesying the first coming of Christ. Uh, this was fulfilled in the first uh, coming of Christ. However, in the middle of verse 4, there's a transition. And Isaiah does this a lot. He, he jumps from one uh, period of time to another. God revealed him the future, but he didn't put it into chronological order. And so we see what else he has to say in verses, the latter part of verse four through eight. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And the righteous shall be the girdle of his loins and the fullness of the girdle of his reins. And the wolf also shall depart with the lamb, shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bearer shall feed and their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like, like the ox, and the sucking child shall play in the hole of the osp, and the weaned child shall put, in, put his hand into the cockatrice den. This has not yet been fulfilled. This has not yet taken place. So apparently, before the fall, before the curse upon the earth, after man sinned, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the animals dwelt together with no fear of each other, no fear between the various species. They would rest, they would feed, they would play together. In the millennium, the ranchers are not going to have to worry about the wolf and the leopard getting their, their herds. The mouse will not run from the cat, nor will the rabbit run from the dog. Won't be any fun going hunting for rabbits during those days. Uh, they won't run away. There will be peace in the animal kingdom. No, no longer division between them. The hyena will no longer devour and kill the gazelle. 
the grizzly bear will no longer be a threat to the human family. And children will play with snakes. In verse 8, imagine the natural hatred of snakes between man and bee and, and snakes is a result of the curse. We just, we are repulsed by snakes, at least I am. I don't like them at all. The natural, there's just a natural hatred of, between man and snakes that's going to be gone. Uh, a friend of mine earlier this year asked if I'd be interested in going along rattlesnake hunting. And uh, any kind of hunting intrigues me. And that intrigued me. However, in the state of Pennsylvania, when it comes to rattlesnakes, they have some weird laws. You're allowed to hunt for them, but you're not allowed to kill them. As a matter of fact, after a period of time, you've got to put them back where you got them. And why you'd hunt for them, I don't know. But a friend of mine asked me if I would be interested in going along for rattlesnakes. I said, I sure would be on one condition. I want to carry my shotgun. Well, that would disqualify me from legally hunting for a rattlesnake. In verse 9 of Isaiah 11, And they shall not hurt nor destroy at all my holy mountain. Animals will no longer be meat to each other. Carnivorous animals will become vegetarians. Because if they're not going to destroy each other, what else are they going to eat but, but vegetables, just like they did at the time of creation? Isaiah 65, verse 25. Isaiah 65, 25. And the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. And the dust shall be the serpent's head. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, thus saith the Lord. And so basically what we see happening during the millennium is that Eden is going to be restored. Just like the natural world was back at the time of creation, so it's going to be during the millennium. In Isaiah 35, 1 to 12, we see the desert is going to, to uh, rejoice and it's going to blossom like a rose. In Joel chapter 2, verse 19, it says, God is going to send corn, wine, and oil, and ye shall be satisfied. World hunger will be gone. The fruitage of the earth is going to be absolutely incredible. Uh, reference for that would be Psalm 72, uh, verse 16. The fruitage of the earth will be enough to take care of world hunger. In Ezekiel 47, it says the waters are going to be healed. Anybody here works for Martin Water Condition? No, I don't see any hands going up. Well, the folks at Martin Water Conditioning are going to be out of a job during the millennium. Well, I would hope that they would have left at the time of the rapture. But water is going to be pure. And, and Andrew, you're going to like this. Fishing is going to be absolutely incredible. Uh, Ezekiel 47, uh, verses 9 and 10. Ezekiel 47, verses 9 and 10. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the rivers will come, shall live. 
and there shall be a great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and they shall live without they shall live whether the river cometh, and it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi even unto Anglium, and they, they shall there shall be a and they shall be a place to spread forth nets, their fish will be according to their kinds, and the fish of the great sea exceeding many. A fisherman is just gonna love uh, that type of thing in in those days. But I don't suppose Fishing is going to be a, a priority on our minds during the millennium. The world is preparing, whether we are aware of it or not, for this great event. It has been for a long time. Romans 8.22, it says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. The whole creation is yearning for this day. The trouble that is going on in today's world are merely the birth pangs of a new and a brighter day. Just like a mother who goes through the birth pangs of delivering a child, and after the child is delivered, all is glory. The pain is forgotten. And that's the world we're living in. And so sometimes we get distressed about hearing all this bad news, but I want to remind you that this is just a preliminary event before the millennium can take place. The old things will pass away. All the trouble in the world today are merely birth pangs to a new and a happier day. And that's why you and I as Christians need not to get distressed about the news at all. We can read the news, we can listen to the news, and we get caught up in it, and our emotions get stirred up, but let's remember, it's nothing to fear. It's nothing to fear at all. All right, the fifth point is God is going to set up a signal to the people of the world. Again, going back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Isaiah 11:10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek. To it shall the Gentiles seek. God is going to set up a sign. The Amplified Bible says it like this. Nations shall inquire. The New International Version says that nations shall rally to him. And so there's going to be a signal, there's going to be sign. What will that sign be? Well, let's read about it. Isaiah 11 and 12, Isaiah 11 verses 11 and 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set out it, shall set out his hand again and the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar, from Hamath, from the islands of the sea. Before I go on, I want to point something out here in verse 11. It says, the hand of the Lord, the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. We often refer to the rapture as the second coming. But that's not actually the second coming, because Christ is not going to set his feet upon the earth. 
The saints are going to rise and meet him in the air. The, when, the second coming is when Christ comes to this earth and he plants his feet upon the earth and he rules the world. That's the second coming. Let's continue on in verse 12. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together dispersed of Jerusalem from the four corners of the world. Israel, this sign is going to be that Israel is going to return from their worldwide dispersion. Because the children of Israel disobeyed God, they got dispersed all over the world. They got picked on. But yet in 1948, Israel became a nation, partly because people started coming back after World War II. And ever since that time, there's been people who have been returning uh, to Israel. And so that's going to be a sign of uh, of this coming event. Verses 13 and 14. The envy also of Jerusalem of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly from the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, and they shall spoil them of the east together, and they shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon will obey them. So Israel is not only going to be returning to their homeland from a worldwide dispersion, But the enemies of Israel are going to become submissive to them. Israel is going to be a nation that will be a world world ruler in a sense. Verses 15 and 16. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shod. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria. God, in some miraculous way, is going to create a super highway for the masses of Jewish people to come back into their homeland, come back to Israel as their homeland. I... uh, a number of years ago, I talked to a Mr. Cap from Marstown, a Jewish man, and uh, he was talking about the Jews returning to home, their homeland. He was not a Christian, but he was aware that the Jews would return to their homeland. And when I asked him when he's going to do that, he was a wealthy man. He said, when the banks close down, a lot of money is held by Jewish people the Jews in the United States are going to leave. Now, I'm not saying that as a fact, but I thought it was interesting to to think about what's going to cause all the comfortable Jews in the United States to want to go to their homeland. Well, right now they're making money, so they're not going to go now. But the time very easily could be in the future that the collapse, the complete collapse of the U.S. economy, and it would cause the wealthy Jews to start going to their homeland. Now notice verse 16, uh, Isaiah 11, verse 16. Like as it was in Israel in that day, he came up out of the land of Egypt. This uh, superhighway is what I'm calling it. There might be better ways of calling it. It's going to be just like the thousands of people that crossed the Red Sea 
And all of a sudden, he's going to destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea and make it possible for them to come into their homeland without any hindrance. So God is going to set up a sign to the people of the world that when Israel starts going to their homeland en masse, it is soon going to be the time of the millennium. The sixth point is the Middle East peace will prevail. Every president after President Eisenhower tried to create himself a legacy to accomplish Middle East peace, but they've all failed. Some were able to accomplish it for a few days, a few weeks, maybe a few months, but it all eventually failed. In Isaiah 19, verses 16 to 18, Isaiah 19, verses 16 to 18. In that day shall Egypt be like unto women, and it shall be afraid and fear because of the shaking of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he shaketh over it. And the land of Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt. Everyone that maketh mention thereof shall be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he hath determined against it. In that day shall five cities... In the land of Egypt, speak the language of Canaan and swear to the Lord of hosts, and one shall be called the city of destruction. Egypt, the arch enemy of Israel, is going to submit to a Judean government. Now, there are some interesting things that are taking place in our world today. I don't know if it's related or not, but it's interesting to observe. Natural gas in the Middle East is getting to be a problem and who gets to provide who with what. Israel has been a major supplier of natural gas into Europe. Europe has by and large been dependent upon this gas. Russia also has been dependent upon this gas. But now there, there's a pipeline that was shut down by this administration and other world leaders which cut off that 1,200-mile line that is buried in the Mediterranean Sea. It was cut off. It's not doing anything. However, Israel went into an agreement with Egypt. And there's an old unused gas line that they started using that goes to Egypt, and they made an agreement with Egypt that they would send them all this unrefined natural gas and that Egypt would turn it into fuel and use their tankers to supply Europe. And of course, this has got Russia upset. So there's a lot of interesting things that are taking place when it, when it comes to, to fuel. Uh, but the, my point is, is that Egypt would have never considered going into an agreement with Israel but they made this deal for this gas. It says here in Isaiah 9, 16 to 18, that there's going to be uh, five cities with a common language and a common Lord. Just think about that. Egypt is going to turn to God during the millennium. In verse 18c, it says, one is called the city of destruction or a city of judgment or righteousness. In unison, they, were, they will swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. 
Egypt is going to cry to the true God for deliverance. Verses 19 to 22. In that day there shall be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And they shall cry unto the Lord because of all the oppressors. And he shall send them a savior, a great one, and he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known in Egypt. And the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. And they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt, and he will smite and heal it. And they shall return even to the Lord and he shall be entreated of them, and he will heal them. Isn't that interesting? What a miracle. What a miracle. Verse 23. It says, and the Lord shall smite. No, verse 23. In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. Yes, Assyria. Assyria is made up of four nations, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. The time is coming when the Muslims will no longer worship their false god, Abba, but they're going to worship the true God, Jesus Christ. Verse 23, there's going to be a highway that will connect these two Nations, Israel and the four Assyrian nations. A highway will connect them. There will be no more border security. Today, there is border security wherever you go. These words are almost too staggering to believe, but it's in the Bible. So we must believe it. It is the word of God as revealed to Isaiah. Zechariah chapter 9 is a parallel scripture to this. Zechariah 9, verse 17, it says, How great is the goodness and how great is his beauty, referring to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 11, 9, it says, The earth shall be full of knowledge of the world. The greatest missionary endeavor will come from the root of Jesse. The church will never, can ever, fully evangelize the world evangelization is going to come from the root of Jesse, from the Jewish people and the Jewish evangelist. Let me read again Isaiah 11, verse 10. 11, verse 10. In that day there shall be root of Jesse, which shall be an ensign to the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. His rest shall be glorious is when the converted Jewish evangelists have done all of their work and spreading the gospel. So I've given you just a few pieces of, of, this, uh, of this huge prophetic picture puzzle. There's a lot more we could learn from it. In conclusion, I want to share a few thoughts. At the conclusion of the millennium, Satan will be re- released for a short season. We see that in Revelations 20, verse 3 and verse 7. Everything is going to be perfect during the millennium, but somehow the sin nature will survive. New people will be born during this period of time. It's interesting to notice that a perfect environment 
and a perfect government cannot take care of the sin problem. That should be an encouragement to you as parents. Sometimes we think we have to have the perfect home and idealistic we think our children are just going to turn out perfect. But it's very clear here that living in a perfect environment is not going to take care of the sin problem. And so there's, uh, Satan is going to come back and, and stir up some trouble again. So immediately after he's released, Satan is going to go to work. And in Revelations 20, verse 8, it says he's going to deceive the nations. In Revelations 20, verses 9 and 10. And who, but we see that he and his new rebels will be destroyed by God with fire from heaven. So he's going to be released for a period of time, but he's eventually going to be destroyed. And then there's going to be the great white throne judgment in Revelations 20, verses 11 to 15. Revelation 20, verse 15 says this, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. My challenge to you tonight, to those of you who stand accountable before God at an accountable age, my question to you is, is your name written there? It is important that we have an affirmative answer to that. If we do not have an affirmative answer to that, we need to seek God while we have the opportunity. And I appreciated the verse that Brother Leon read this evening. Seeing that all these things are dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Brothers and sisters, prophetic scripture is not given for speculation. It's given for motivation, to motivate us to turn to God, to remind us that our God has all things in control and we can relax in his will no matter how desperate things around us become. We can trust our God. He's going to deliver us. We've got a lot to look forward to. We've got a lot of glory ahead of us if our mind is set on Jesus Christ and our sins have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your prophetic word. We confess that there's so much of it we don't understand. But what we do study and what we do discover, it just, it's just so exciting to know, dear Father, that someday there's going to be world victory by Jesus Christ, that Jesus is going to be the ruler of the earth, and that all evil will be destroyed and be done away with. And so we pray, dear Father, that you might help us to continue persevering just for a little while, because one of these days the trumpet's going to sound and the saints will rise in the air. But we know after that time there will be a time of great trouble, such as the world has never seen. And oh, dear Father, our desire is that not one of us, not one church member, not one neighbor, not per one person that we love would be left behind at the rapture because we know what they're going to face. And so, dear Father, we pray that not only may we be motivated to look forward to these glorious events, but may we also be motivated to share the gospel with those that we have the opportunity to share with. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask the song leader for a song, and then we'll turn it over to the moderator.